This is hell. Speaking to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell and your host while Chuck recovers from wisdom tooth removal surgery. Chuck will return to the interview booth on Monday. We have a good show in store for you today. Coming up first, a March 25th, 2017 interview with Jessica Crispin author of Why I'm Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto from Melville House. Jessa explains to Chuck why she rejects today's mainstreamed neoliberal feminism and calls for a return to feminism's radical promise. As a sharp-edged outsider's social critique, as a challenge to the supremacy of capitalism, and as a path towards a radically reorganized society. Jessa is a writer and the founder and editor of the magazines Book Slut and Spoilia. Then, a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, in which Jeff relates some rude remembrances of yesteryear's identity politics failures. Sort of post-feminist in its way. And of course, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, if you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? I look forward to reading the rest of these and selecting this week's winner. Without further delay, then, let's roll the interview. This is hell. Our next guest is not a feminist. That is, not the way that feminism has been bought, commodified, marketed, branded, and rebranded, so it doesn't even look or sound like feminism anymore. Instead, she offers a manifesto for a real revolution. Here to tell us why she's not a feminist, Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jessa. Thank you for having me. This is a fantastic book. I really, really appreciate this opportunity to have you on our show. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. How would you define feminism? Because you ask, are you a feminist? Do you believe women are human beings and deserve to be treated as such? That women deserve all the same rights and liberties bestowed upon men? If so, then you are a feminist, or so all the feminists keep insisting. And you call this the simplicity and obviousness of the dictionary definition of feminism. So is feminism, how would you define feminism? And is it the idea that everybody deserves the same rights and liberties? Yeah, it's it's my my version of feminism is that there's no one human life that holds more value than any other, and that's a very kind of um, modern day feminism would say yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Except the way that modern feminism behaves itself, uh, the goals of modern day feminism act in conflict with that. Um, and in, in the way that feminism has been used as an excuse, uh, for say the invasion of Afghanistan in the way that contemporary feminism, um, is mostly about, uh, you know, entering corporate culture, entering, um, the corrupt system of government as, as it currently exists, rather than it reforming, um, society as a way of, uh, as a way of valuing all human life, as a way of removing hierarchies of power. 
You know what? When I was reading your book, I couldn't uh, help but think of that new statue, Fearless Girl, which is in front of the Charging Bull statue <laughs> on Wall Street. There was an opinion piece in the New York Times by Genia Belafonte, where she argues that the point of Fearless Girl was to advertise an initiative pushing companies to include more women on their uh, boards. Uh, is the root of this effort, she writes, an organic wish to buoy the ambitions of confident little girls in high tops? Not particularly as the investment firm State Street Global Advisors, which commissioned the statute clearly states in marketing materials, research shows that companies with greater levels of gender diversity have had stronger financial performance and fewer governance-related issues such as bribery, corruption, shareholder uh, battles, and fraud. So do you see uh, good or bad feminism, real or false feminism in the fearless girl statue or somewhere in between? Oh, well, it's obviously a joke. Um why is it why is it a girl? <laughs> why is it not a woman? Um what what what's the symbolic imagery of a little of a little white girl? Um what are the values that we project onto girlhood? Um all of these are worthy conversations, but in, in reality this is an advertisement for for a, cor- a corporate culture. And the idea that women are somehow more uh, nurturing, more empathetic, more compassionate, less corrupt in an inherent way that when if women are bestowed with power, that they will somehow um, express it in a more benevolent way rather than engaging in the shenanigans that Wall Street and Silicon Valley and all these sort of very problematic um, industries do that are currently ruled by men. This is this is a myth. It's it's silly. It's beneath us. The idea that a, a small girl tames the wild beast is is absurd. But it's a theme that it's a story that we keep, you know, Beauty and the Beast. This came out. It's a it's a Logan has the same storyline. It's a ridiculous thing that we need to really examine. So what does it say to you about the news media then when they put so much focus on that statue during the women's strike? That was, I believe I saw it on every one of the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then the cable news uh, networks as well, MSNBC, Fox, CNBC, CNN. I saw them all on the International Women's Strike Day showing that statue of the fierce girl. So what does that say to you about the way in which the news media uh, it expresses or covers feminism today. It covers it like like children. It, it, it's a very simplistic way of of looking at the world. A very simplistic way of dealing with gender, which is the way that mainstream media has always dealt with women. You know, there's a reason why up until only you know about ten years ago, the the best role a woman could get in Hollywood was as you know a wife or a mother. Um, or mistress or a prostitute, uh, we don't have a complex conversation around um, women or gender in in general in this country, and particularly in the mainstream media. We are a very uh, sentimental country when it comes to women, and this definitely plays out in these narratives and in the way that women are portrayed in 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 entertainment in in the media in, in these conversations uh we don't like to have a sophisticated conversation about women 
In May of last year, we spoke with Andy Zeisler, author of We Were Feminists Once, and she talked about this kind of feminism, the kind of feminism that she opposed, which she called pop feminism, feel-good feminism, and white feminism. Andy adds, I call it marketplace feminism. It's decontextualized, it's depoliticized, and it's uh, probably feminism's most popular iteration ever. So is the kind of feminism you oppose, the sellable, as Andy describes it, kind of feminism we see in pop culture, the commodified feminism that is decontextualized? Right. Um, I mean, she ran Bitch Magazine for a long time, which I read when I was, um, you know, in in college and and coming out of it. Uh, So she was definitely... um, her projects have always been kind of uh, in alignment with my own. There are different, there are different sections of feminism that are, um, that the book, that my book deals with. And definitely commodified feminism is one of them. Another is lean in corporate culture, feminism, um, political feminism, you know, the, the sort of unquestioned, widespread support that Hillary Clinton got in the primaries um, from the kind of feminist leaders from Gloria Steinem in, in the second wave to third wave feminists like uh, Jessica Valenti and so on. Um, and then there's outrage feminism, which is a much more of an internet phenomenon. So it's uh, mine is a little, my book is a little more scattered than Andy's, <laughs> I'm afraid, but um but there are different um, subsections of feminism that are that share a kind of uh, a, a problem or a a difficulty in the foundations of of, of contemporary feminism, an idea that they all share, um, which I think is is wrong and and problematic. Uh, you mentioned Hillary Clinton. We did a series of interviews with people who were contributors to Liza Featherstone's uh, book, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. And so uh, you write that one thing, the patriarchal uh, system under which we live definitely wants you to believe is that you are on your own. Independence and freedom are what you wanted, right? So independent, you swing toward fragility and loneliness. So free, you exist in a blank space with no guideposts or reference points. Feminism can and should be an alternative to this isolation. It should be a way of creating alternatives to the way we live. Now, we're told that when it comes to capitalism, especially the neoliberal brand of capitalism, we're told by Margaret Thatcher that there is no alternative. Recently, Democratic minority leader in Congress, uh, Nancy Pelosi, said in a response to a question at a CNN town hall about having a more stark contrast in economic policies from the right, she said, we're capitalist and that's the way it is. So how much should or how much can feminism be a challenge to the economic system and in terms of economics offer an alternative to the way that we live? Well, feminism needs to start talking about what its values are and how those values differ from the values of the wider culture. And we're uncomfortable with the word values because, I don't know, it's it's somehow vaguely religious or something or or moralistic. People don't People don't like having this conversation of what is it that you actually, what is it that you actually value? Because when you look at contemporary feminism, it has been corrupted by this neoliberal worldview, 
where what you value, even if you tell yourself, even if you tell yourself that I'm a feminist and so I value community and I value compassion and so on, if you're living your life in this sense of you're only concerned with your own well-being, if your goals in life are simply to improve your own conditions, to make money, to advance yourself into a career in, say, the banking industries or the tech industries, um, or in any sort of corporate culture that is destroying uh, the environment or using sweatshops in Bangladesh or whatever it is, then you are showing that you, those values are not actually your values. You don't value compassion if that's, if that's the way that you live your life. So, so if we do value something other than greed and other than money and power, which is what the, the contemporary society values most of all, then we need to actually start living by those values. And that means not participating in systems of oppression. So in that sense, is the problem with today's feminism that it has adapted to the ethos of neoliberalism, faith in private enterprise, ever-expanding commodification, bootstrap individualism? Is the problem feminism or what neoliberalism has done to feminism? Well, feminism used to be a way of critiquing society. It used to be outside of society as a way of criticizing it in, in a way of progressing it, in, in a way of creating uh, societal structural changes. Somehow, be, when it became, um, once women were allowed to participate in society and were not marginalized from it in a wide, in a wide scale, uh, once the obstacles to education, uh, money, and so on were removed from the law books, then it became, feminism became about um, not criticizing society so much as, as, as a way of seeking greater participation in the society as it already exists. Because it's really easy to criticize corporate culture when you can't make your living in it. If you're outside the walls, then it's very easy to throw rocks at it. Once you're inside, once you actually have the opportunity to succeed, to also benefit from money and power, it's much more difficult to even want to criticize it. So you tell yourself these, these stories about, well, I know that I'm a good person. So it's okay if I'm working in, in the financial sector. Uh, because I'm going to improve the financial sector just by virtue of being a good person, not understanding that that's not how that's not how reform happens. That's not how structural changes happen. So the neoliberal worldview is is the world that we're all now living under and participating in. Um, but feminism used to be a way of looking at society rather than. Um, being just a part of it, being propping it up, uh, helping it to exist. Is today's feminism one that has made concessions, one that is, in a sense, liberal, even too liberal, a feminism that is not contentious but concessionary? Well, feminism today is almost meaningless as, as a word. 
because it's been co-opted by all these different groups in a very um, um, self-congratulatory kind of way and in a unquestioned kind of way. So now you have, um, you know, it used to be that mainstream culture were terrified of feminists, you know. Religious leaders used to blame hurricanes on feminists and queers. Um, you know, God, feminism made God so angry he had to, you know, blight the earth with a hurricane or an earthquake or something. Um, but now it's, it's a word that's being used by... Um, by Hillary Clinton, who is a neoliberal warmonger. It's being used by pop stars like Taylor Swift. It's being used by the pro-lifers now, for whatever reason. So the word feminism itself, I don't think, has any meaning anymore. So if I say, you know, this is, this thing is, this is a feminist idea, or I am a feminist, or whatever, the the word has been so drained of meaning that whoever hears me say that um, can kind of project any sort of um, any sort of meaning on that word that they that they want to. You know, many people point to Trump's supporters and Republicans as being sexist and feminist. But when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the impact that the Democratic Party has had on feminism. What, ha- how much damage do you think the Democratic Party has done to feminism? I don't think. Um, I don't think that it's any anybody's any particular group's fault. I mean, when we talk about, you know, when we talk about Trump and we talk about um, how Trump is against women and the fact that Trump was elected uh, says something about the misogyny in this country. In order to have that conversation, we need to forget that 29 million women voted for Donald Trump. Um, So are we going to say that these women are are misogynistic in some way? No, it's Many of those women claimed to be feminists as they were voting for Donald Trump, said that voting for Donald Trump was somehow a feminist act. And as far as the Democrats go, um, this is a a situation where the Democrats use um, abortion and pro-choice words, the language, but they don't actually back it up with any action. So they use it to kind of rally the base. But then they constantly disappoint because as as they're sort of saying, well, I'm pro-choice and we'll protect Roe v. Wade from being overturned. You know, as they say that clinic, that the clinic is closing across America. There are states that only have one abortion clinic left. And I think that this is a big problem with contemporary feminist rhetoric is that it isn't connected to the everyday reality of what it's like to be a woman in this country. So contemporary feminist rhetoric is, is deals with issues of self-empowerment, lip service to sort of pro-choice things and, and what's good for women, like the, you know, the closing the wage gap and so on. But how women actually live their lives and what's actually going to improve their lives has, is not part of the conversation at all. 
You write that radical change is scary, it's terrifying actually, and the feminism I support is a full-on revolution. Last week when we spoke with uh, the author and columnist Judith Levine, who in a recent article quoted the late uh, artic- uh, late radical public intellectual Ellen Willis writing in 2005, for, the, for most of my politically conscious life, the idea of social transformation has been the great taboo of American politics. How much do you think the real goals of feminism, say the goals of the women's strikes, such as equal pay, paid parental and medical leave, universal uh, child care, universal health care, freedom from sexual abuse, deportation, racism, and violence. How much do you think those are taboo in U.S. politics? Is the social and political transformations at the heart of real feminism, feminism that you would support simply too scary for Americans? Right. I don't understand how after the failure yesterday of uh, the Republican health care bill, how the conversation did not immediately switch to single payer. I don't, I feel like the left in America, as it is a, um, a philosophy or political viewpoint, is much more radical than the politicians that are currently in power with the Democrats. You know, the Obviously, they're very centrist. Obviously, they're very uh, conservative and ineffectual, or we wouldn't be living in the world that we live in. Um, and while the right has taken up the sort of extreme position, um, the Democrats have decided to counter that with, with taking a very centrist, reasonable, um, totally in a, unable to actually accomplish anything position. Um so, yeah, the, the things that actually would improve the lives of women are somehow um, not part of the conversation at all. And that includes health care reform, subsidized child care. And these things aren't even part of the mainstream feminist conversation anymore, because the mainstream feminist conversation is about your, you know, fat acceptance and whether or not Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a feminist television show. You know, I read... How many think pieces about that this week? Um, <laughs> that has been off the air for God knows how long. And I've read at least three think pieces this week alone about Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the most feminist thing that's ever happened. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not actually how grown-ups think about politics and feminism. We are speaking with Jessica Crispin. She is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Manifesto. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, one of America's very first uh, book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How much has feminism then diverted from the path of something we discussed last week with historian Marjorie Spruill about her uh, book, uh, Divided We... Uh, Divided We Stand, that is the 1977 International Women's Year Conference where they devised a plan of action that included ending discrimination in education and employment, opening up new opportunities to women in every field, including elective and a point of office, urge greater participation and recognition of women in the media, and an end to sexual stereotyping both in the media and in schools and a host of other demands. How much has feminism diverted from where it was in 1977 at that International Women's Year Conference? Well, to me, that's not the important part of second wave feminism. That, to me, is very much in line with how we look at whether or not feminism is succeeding today. You know, when when people do these sort of tallies of how how is feminist 
is feminism doing? Well, we look at how many women are, uh, the percentage of women that are CEOs of companies, the percentage of women um, in the Senate, the percentage of women um, in, in medical school or whatever. That is about participating in a society that is sick, that is uh, structured around oppression and exploitation. So that to me is not interesting. I'm more, much more interested in the radical thinkers of the second wave of uh, Shulamith Firestone, Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, um, Andrew Dworkin, these sorts of people who understood that the foundations of society are in oppression, that our society doesn't function without somebody being powerless and somebody being the powerful and that we're just going to keep. So even if women somehow gain power, there's still going to be some demographic that is the powerless. The demographic is going to be exploited and oppressed because that's how our society functions. And so the only way to create true equality, not just for women, but for everyone is to found our society in some other idea, in, into some other structure. So that to me is much more interesting and much more necessary than just sort of putting more women on the board of Facebook. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, uh, what does it say about the way in which feminism is seen today or when people say, you know, women are rising in power and they point to Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Theresa May, Marine Le Pen. What does that what should that reveal to us about the way in which feminism is branded or the way in which it's defined today? Right. Uh, true equality will will never be achieved until it's a woman who drags us into a into a nuclear holocaust, right? I mean, it, it's this idea that <laughs> That women, uh, the powerful woman um, of, of true equality and this idea that all we need is to get women in, in a position of power and everything. And everything will suddenly magically be fine. It's such a fairy tale. And, it, and it's such a, uh, it's based on this idea that women are somehow more compassionate than men. But that is a lie that men told us in order to keep us at home taking care of the children. You know, you're so much better at it. You're more nurturing. You're more emotional. You know, you do that stuff and I'll do the, the, the hard work. You know, you, you'd be bored by it. You know, stay with the kids. So we've bought into this lie because it's convenient for us now. It used to be inconvenient. Now we're, we have it working for us instead because now we don't have to question our motives because our motives are so obviously pure. Um, how could they possibly be anything but? So this is a ridiculous lie, and we need to actually start thinking about these things, which is why the promotion of Hillary Clinton as the feminist candidate was baffling to me. Like, if you, if you actually just dismiss her gender and look at her record, she was terrible for women. Um, and the fact that you couldn't have that conversation during the primary season without being branded a traitor was absurd to me. I'm glad you mentioned that because you have you write that. Uh, let me get to this question. I have it right here. 
Uh, you write that uh, feminism is a method of shaming and silencing anyone who disagrees with you, inspired by a naive belief that disagreement of conflict is abuse. So I just want you to expand on that. How does feminism shame and silence those who may disagree with you? Well, there's there there's outrage culture, which is this idea, uh, this phenomenon that happens mostly online, but uh, it happens in, in the real world too, where um, if you profess an unpopular opinion, if you use the wrong language, um, in the in the case of uh, Tim Hunt, Professor Tim Hunt, if you make a bad joke. Uh, that can be taken out of context. You lose your job. Um, in the case of, and Laura Kipnis has a, a book about this that's coming out next month uh, called Unwanted Advancers about um, Title IX tribunals on college campuses. You know, she wrote an essay in a non-university publication, and she's a professor at Northwestern University. And she was brought up on hostile, creating a hostile uh, environment um, of a sexual nature, and brought up on these sort of um, Title IX charges by her, by some students, not even her students, but just other students um, on the university campus, and almost lost her job because of it. And professors have lost their jobs because of these kinds of things. So, and it's done under the name of feminism. The when the girls and women that were protesting against Laura Kipnis were uh, part of the feminist organization on campus. And, you you know, you've seen throughout the years, um, women like Jermaine Greer have been uninvited from um, to speak on college campuses because her some of her language when she talks about trans issues have not been the words that are the preferred words at the moment. They're not the preferred opinion at the moment. Um, you see it happening right now with the Dave Chappelle comedy special. People are, are boycotting Netflix because they objected to a joke or two in, in the Dave Chappelle um, comedy special about, uh, about gays. And so it's this idea that if somebody has a different opinion than we do, that they need to feel consequences for that. They need to be fired. They need to lose their job. They need to be publicly humiliated. And it's not a conversation. It's a condemnation. So how much is today's feminism about avoiding arguments or deep discussions about the fight for equal rights for women or the acknowledgement of the lack of equal rights for women? Uh, How much is it about not feeling uncomfortable? Oh, it's almost entirely about not feeling uncomfortable. That's, that's why a contemporary feminism is so focused on the self, on uh, individual achievement, on improving your own conditions, on pursuing your own goals, using the language of self-empowerment, and, um, which, by the way, is an 80s term that Reagan and Thatcherites used as a justification for taking away social welfare programs, that we need to make sure that people can be self-empowered and not rely on state welfare programs. Um, somehow we've, we've taken this as, as a good thing rather than understanding that it's about 
removing any sort of feelings of solidarity between gender or class. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, when you focus so much on your own pursuits, on your own self, when you don't use feminism as a way of interrogating the culture that you live in and interrogating the way that you participate in that culture, then it just becomes this kind of feel-good mantra of, you know, everything you do is great because you're a feminist and it's super important for women for you to, you know, drink that smoothie and buy that t-shirt and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it, people don't like it when you question their choices anymore because it's not about, um, it's not about which smoothie do you like? It's somehow that smoothie becomes an integral part of your identity. And so if you question that choice, you are questioning, questioning the legitimacy of your entire existence somehow, which is a bad road to go down. It's a, it's a silly way to start thinking. So to what degree can you consumer boycott or support businesses or sign petitions or vote in elections to change the world in the one that truly believes in, embraces, and actually implements equal rights for women? Well, I think you have to live your life with integrity and you have to figure out what, you're, what, what you value and then live your life in alignment with those values. And it is as simple and as blindingly complex as that. Um, because that's not a conversation that is encouraged, I think that um, we look at it on this very kind of surface level way of, you know, uh, should I get that pedicure? Is, is, what lifestyle choices should I make? That sort of stuff. Um, until you get down at the real root of your of your life and of your society and of your culture and your community and your family and all that stuff, like right down to the base of it, and you understand what it's rooted in and try to change that, then the surface level stuff doesn't doesn't necessarily make a big difference. You know, I, I've been on this book tour in Australia trying to talk about these issues and people would come to me with questions like, is it okay that I like the movie Love Actually? And I was like, I don't think you're... <laughs> I think it's deeper than that question. I think it's deeper than, you know, well, what do I say to my boss if, you know, if, if he's sort of, you know trying to keep me from getting a raise or whatever. It's like, this, this is the wrong way to look at this situation. It, you have to look at the, the base motivations, not at just the, the, the symptoms, um, the sort of visible symptoms that are manifesting. So I, there was an article uh, by past guest on our show, Katha Powlett, at The Nation last week, headlined, Can a Feminist Be Pro-Life? Katha wrote the article in a response to, as she writes, in January, New Wave Feminists, an anti-choice organization, was briefly listed as a sponsor on the website for the Women's March on Washington. Katha cites Lauren 
Enriquez, a PR manager with the Anti-Choice Human Coalition, writing in a New York Times op-ed, headlined how the new feminist resistance leaves out American women, that the movement's radical position on abortion cannot unite American women. Cather writes that a, a a woman's constitutional right to decide for themselves when and if to become a mother is an essential part of feminism today. In your opinion, how much are abortion rights and a pro-choice stance at the very core of feminism. Without abortion rights, what is feminism? And do you see a trajectory in feminism that could lead to a feminism that is actually embracing of an anti-choice opinion? Well, look, I think it's I think it's absolutely possible to be a feminist and to be philosophically and morally pro-choice or pro-life. I, I believe that you can um, believe that um, women hold as much value as men philosophically and also believe that abortion is a death. Once you start legislating that for other women, that is fundamentally not feminist because you are trying to control the lives and the choices and the belief system of other women. And that, that's patriarchal. That's, there's no way to get around that. But that's a patriarchal um, method of control. So can somebody be pro-life and be feminist? Yes. Can they advocate for the end of abortion and be feminist? No, absolutely not. I think that abortion rights are overemphasized in the feminist conversation in the way that um, politicians use it as this issue to rally the base, but then don't actually do anything to improve access uh, to to abortion services or family planning services. They they don't necessarily do anything um, to make it more affordable to women. Um, So I think that it takes up a lot of space in the conversation but doesn't take up a lot of space in the world. You know, I, I used to work at Planned Parenthood in Texas. Texas is a huge state. There are only a couple abortion providers in the state. Women often had to drive for hours to get abortions. Um, and then when, you know, when they got to the clinic, they were told there's a 24 or 36-hour waiting period after uh, meeting with a doctor, and so then they have to spend even more money to get a motel for the night or whatever. Like, it was a nightmare. But that was never part of the conversation. The, the conversation, the pro-choice conversation um, across the country was just, you know, well, we're not going to overturn, we're going to protect Roe v. Wade. Like, Roe v. Wade does not mean anything if women can't actually get abortions. So there's a huge disconnect between rhetoric and lived experience. And I think that people use abortion as a um as a litmus test as a, as a kind of shibboleth as as these sort of rallying issues that um but don't back it up with actual real action 
Well, let's talk about an aspect of the discussion that isn't happening, and you point out in your book that I find fascinating. Fascinating. You write, we need to define what it is we value, how we express that value, and what we ask society to value in us. Money is currently how we express value, particularly through our unconscious association between income and worth, as in if someone is financially struggling, they must not be producing anything of value. If someone is financially successful, they must be producing work of tremendous value. But also, if I am not being paid for my work, that work must not be valuable. How much do monetary, does monetary value undermine our values? How much does money undermine our principles, our standards of behavior, our judgment of what is important in life and what is right and wrong? Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, money is nothing except a corrupting force, right? It's, it's just... Um, you know, the, in the past sort of a uh, couple of years, I've been very interested in the women of the Catholic Church in, in the sense of the saints. Um, because 500 years ago, St. Teresa of Avila was writing about money, about how do we create a society that is not centered around money? How do we, uh, how do we, value a life through something other than the than expressing it with money um and so it's fascinating and and also completely disheartening to think that we've been dealing with this um it, through uh through uh, women's philosophy for 500 years and, and we're still in the place that we are but the idea that i keep coming back to you with the church and I'm not I'm not Catholic, I'm not even Christian. Um but the thing that I think that I find so appealing was this idea in the in the in early Christianity that if you became a member of the church you gave up your property, right? Um you uh you gave your you bestowed your land and your money to the church. And the reason why you did that was because owning property meant that you had people subject to your will. And so you were um, uh, relinquishing that power that you, that you held over others. And that that was the first step to being a true Christian. Now, obviously, the church took that property and ran with it. Um, but the idea of that still has so much hold on my imagination of what that means. And I, you know, I, <laughs> as a writer, you're told a lot of stuff about how to make money, about how to brand yourself, about how to, um, you know, create this kind of financial foundation for yourself. Um, but part of that is by giving up, your ideals and compromising on your values and writing stuff that you don't believe in and, and so on and so forth in order to get published. And I absolutely refuse to do that, which means I don't have any money. Um, but I'm, I'm fine with that because St. Teresa and I can have a nice chat and a bottle of wine about it, you know.
as you can imagine, I am very much in the same financial state as you are with a radio show that has content like this. <laughs> it doesn't really help. You really don't get a lot of corporate sponsorship when you're being very critical of capitalism and pointing out its flaws. Jessa, one last question for you. Jessa Crispin yeah. is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto that I think everybody should be reading out there. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, which was one of America's very first book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How, uh, the last question that we have for all of our guests is the question from hell. We, uh, it's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. How <laughs> anathema to what you see as good feminism, I guess, uh, and how, uh, how much damage was done to feminism by the idea and the branding and use of girl power? Well, it's the Buffy thing, right? It's the Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. Um, that that kind of idea overtook feminism somehow, um, of being strong, being empowered, that sort of thing. And it, and it feels good. You know, it feels good to have power. It feels good to be strong. It feels good to um, profit off of our society it feels good to make money etc cetera, etc cetera. but those are the standards of success from patriarchal culture the patriarchy values you for the money that you make for the power that you wield um and so feminism should have been the opposite of that of let's not judge how well we're doing based on how much money we're making but how much care we put into the world, how much compassion we are capable of developing. Um, so to me, the girl power thing, the, the, the Barbie doll version of feminism, the very pretty corporate version of feminism, that's not feminism, that's patriarchy. It's the same thing, just now with a skirt on it. And we have to kind of understand that in order to be able to reject it and create something new and better. Yeah, I was just about to say that I was wondering how much is today's feminism about the worst aspects of the patriarchy, the worst aspects of men. Is that what today's feminism is really all about? Yeah, it's women behaving like men. Women um, having the same goals as men and, and having the same sort of... Um, definitions of what a good life is as men but i feel like how low are our standards you know we should we should aspire to be a little bit better because we should understand intimately what it means to be on the other side of somebody uh who operates in that way Jessa, I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show. This is a fantastic book. Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. It's now time for another moment of truth. 
I'd say that I have Jeffy on the line, as is the custom, but uh, in this situation, I'd be lying. I do have him loaded into my DAW, however. So here he is. This is hell. I know Alex has Jeffy on the line. I am certain of it. One, two, you know what to do. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst, that is, the drink. There's a nice little article in The Baffler this week by Amber Ali Frost. Why there would be frost on the leeward side of Amber, I have no idea. Perhaps she was facing windward first and then transitioned or came about, as we say in the nautical world. I would apologize for this tortured quarter joke, but I'm not smart enough to read The Baffler anyway, and they should know better than to make themselves available to a cretinous public. The article called My Kind of Misogyny, I Don't Care If They Call a Warhawk Cankles, is about Hillary Clinton. I think the world of Frost. I wish I'd known her back in college in the 80s when I really needed an ally against frivolous umbrage-taking by identity politics prigs because I consider her that kind of ally. And I have to believe that somewhere in her socialist heart, she wouldn't be scared or repulsed by my camaraderie. What I believe Frost's article presents are a couple of common sense ideas. One, attributing Bernie Sanders' male supporters' critiques of Hillary Clinton to those supporters being misogynist is an intellectually bankrupt cop-out. And two, there's probably misogyny at work in a lot of what even the best-hearted this male activist does, but a lot of it isn't worth mentioning since what mainly allows and conduces the oppression of women in every marginalized group is the violently unfair economic structure. It's possible I've done terrible violence to Frost's views here, but they were presented so seductively they were basically asking for it. If I read Frost correctly, not just in this article, but in others she's written, she's really writing about priorities advocating a clear-eyed recognition of whose lives are damaged under the status quo and exactly what is it that damages them. And she seems to consider the greatest problem, as I do, usually the enforced powerlessness imposed by the increasing but historically ever-present disparity in wealth and opportunity. When issues become over-intellectualized to a rarefied degree verging on the metaphysical, she likes to pare away the accretions of sophistry directly to who gets to do what with actual tangible resources and who gets little or no say in those doings and why. How can you not like that? What's not to like? I don't know if the particulars of my general demeanor fall under the rubric brochialist. This show has a bro flavor to it, of course, with its beer centrism and, of course, its host, whom one would have to call cis male. Although there's so much of the factory irregular about him, I'm not sure the term really applies. I don't see myself as a bro. I think I'm too old. I've been called a silverback, and I'm prepared to shoulder that epithet as long as my back holds out and maintains its luster. Personally, I consider myself queer. I'm a Jew, possessed of physical features largely objectionable to the mainstream. I'm functionally mentally ill. 
and my genitalia is unpredictable. Listeners and readers know me as someone who has been beating the drum against blind political correctness, even as I stridently assert my own right to be offended by anything and everything, often under shaky logic or, or even none at all. And so, for entertainment purposes only, I will in future be referring to Hillary Clinton as Billary Clintonot. I myself am deeply offended by this moniker I've coined. Let me just declare in my own defense. And yes, I know it's not possible to tie a clit into a knot. I do believe, though, that the Democratic frontrunner's clit is tied in a knot, a Gordian knot. Sexual frustration and dysfunction have been used as metaphors for fascism since fascism first raised its ugly, half-hard erection. It is in that satirical tradition I am operating here, I guess. And, of course, Clitnot isn't actually a fascist. She's the oligarch's toady par excellence, as was her glib, predatory, masterfully seductive husband. And I can't even tell you what my unpredictable genitals just did when I briefly envisioned him. Sigh. Yet I come not to bash Hillary Clitnot and her knotted clit, nor to praise Bernie Sanders, although I do think it's high time we had a balding Jewish candidate. Since, after all, we do make up 50% of the population of character actors portraying non-charismatic high school English teachers. Let me get back to Frost, though, and misattribute some of my own quasi-brosiopathic feelings to her, because she has emboldened me to share things I would never, under any circumstances, share without an avowed feminist socialist to hide behind. There's a Seinfeld episode in which Brian Cranston plays a dentist who converts to Judaism and immediately starts telling Jewish jokes. And Jerry resents it, because he thinks the dentist converted just for the jokes. By the way, I've read a few punk-ass bloggy dingleberries assessing the Seinfeld show as politically repugnant, and I have to say, you anti-Semitic bitches don't know what you're talking about. There's a monthly discussion group I attend. What we discuss varies, but it is always viewed through the lens of social justice and its endless problematics. Most of the people in the group are a good 15 or so years younger than I, and it's lovely to see them hashing over the same contradictions I did when I was their age, except they're not as neurotic and whiny about them. And really, they revitalize my thinking, which has a tendency to grow stale. I just adore them, all of them, even the one I'm about to dish, okay? There's a particular transgendered person in the group, and I don't think I'm far off in guessing she's trans from a masculinish identity to a femininish one. Although, of course, these are imprecise terms. Oh, my God, blah, 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 whatever. <clears throat> she's got a wonderful look, completely confounding gender expectations, shapely gams, and her voice is mannish, to say the least. She's a chemist, I gather, and not averse to holding forth on scientific subjects. Furthermore, She's taken to appointing herself the voice of reason whenever she decides the discussion has traveled too deeply into non-fact-based speculation. And it occurred to me one day that I had a right to wonder if she had transitioned just so she could mansplain without being called on it. Is there such a thing as transplaining? And if mansplaining is annoying, how much more so when the mansplainer is trying to get away with it under the guise of not being a man? I mean, really, is this what polite society has come to? What do people in academia think about this? Are they okay with this? Because this is some BS right here, in my opinion. Am I right or am I right? Or is there a third option? 
in the end, truly, it's not that big a deal. I mean, when compared with the criminalization of poverty here in the U.S., where a de facto debtor's prison system has emerged, it's not even a bigger deal than the difficulties my transplanting friend has to slog through every day, just try to be herself. It's not easy day-to-day priority the size of deals. People at greatest risk usually have the prioritizing done for them or to them. The trick when considering which politicians to support for president of the United States is to see through the cloud of dust raised by the battle over perceptions and consider who, in their capacity as top manager of the various departments of the federal government, might be more likely to tip the balances away from despair. Enamored as I am with Bernie's balding Jewishness, that's not what makes me prefer him to Billary Clitnot. And while it's important to have non-white, non-Christian, non-cis male people in positions of power, that can't be the goal in itself. Women can't wait around for economic parity to emerge and put them into power by ushering in an era of equality, of course. But neither can people who care about domestic and global economic fairness vote for a gender mascot. I mean, almost likely vote for her if she gets the nomination, but if she wins, there will be a sour undertaste of defeat in that victory. Those of us disturbed by growing inequality are used to that flavor, though. It's good to have a perhaps like-minded writer like Amber Ali Frost to act as a mooring amidst the morass of mores, because I'm at sea. If you're not, you're not paying attention, right? Survival itself is a victory. And while surviving, it's icing on the cake if we amuse ourselves and others, do our best to be kind, but not cloyingly so, as we figure out how best to correct the outrageous violence done to everyone by patriarchal capitalism and its consequent chaos. It's as simple as that. And let me tell you, on the voyage to economic justice, Billary Clitnot is way off course. But more on that as the election cycle progresses. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Remember, if you are ever upset by the content of the moment of truth, email alex at thisishell.com. <laughs> if you loved it, then email jeff at thisishell.com, and maybe he'll get that email. All right, Jeffy, until what? next week. What? What should I do? Stay beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more hell, visit thisishell.com. Thank you, Jeffy. I hope you're staying beautiful out there in Cali, and I hope all is well. It's now time for the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Let's see how our listeners on Twitter have been responding. Two responses on Twitter. Uh, first, from Bull Fang. He replies to the question from Hell if you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? Fang responds, Chuck, I would give you a lamp with a genie in it that grants at least three wishes. Finding myself fresh out of genie lamps, though, 
can only wish you mental health and my best wishes. Happy birthday. Todd H. replies, world peace. <laughs> I love a good pun. Let's see, over on Discord. We haven't gotten to Discord, have we? No, we haven't. Kim G. replies, the winning lotto ticket. And what do you do with that, Kim? You reinvest your winnings, as Chuck always likes to tell us. Uh, Cam replies, an autograph from God. Prove me wrong. <laughs> uh, Marks and Sparks replies, a bagel. They're delicious. <laughs> Shrug emoji. They are delicious. I would like a bagel for my birthday, which happens to be today, actually. Uh, that's right. We have back-to-back -back birthdays here at This Is Hell. Let's see. Over on Facebook, we have a few stragglers that I didn't get to yesterday. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I caught these. Uh, John T. replies, Peanut Farm seems to lead a long and able life. <laughs> I like a good Jimmy Carter joke. Uh, Fabio A. replies, the death of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> I think he might have more uh, blood on his hands than any living person. Uh, I'm not 100% on that, but I have a hunch. Uh, Laddie S. replies, no more surgical procedures for at least a year. Yeah, here's hoping. I like doing these fill-in episodes, but and it's just not the same. Let's see how our listeners are responding at the other Facebook group. Welcome to the hellhole. New one from Jen D. A transporter to a kinder, pain-free alternate universe. And I hope there is such an alternate universe at all out there. But if you can find a way out there, Jen, uh, let me know. Alright, and let's see if there are any stragglers on Patreon. Uh, we have one from Justin M. who replies, Wisdom. Alright, strong showing this week, listeners. Some of my favorites are from Nick E. 11,780 votes. I like Ken M.'s suggestion that uh, we gather enough Patreon members so our gap-toothed host can have teeth implants that put Joseph Robinette Biden's artificial smile to shame. Sorry, but once this happens, you have to change the This Is Hell tagline. Come on, people. Let's make this happen for Chuck. I also liked Aaron D's response on Patreon about uh, transplanting organs from Elon Musk. It's a long response, so I won't really read the whole thing here. Um, some other responses I thought were pretty great. Again, it was a strong showing by all of you. Uh, Bradley R. Applying mirrored sunglasses for staring into the abyss so the abyss can't stare back. Lots of health well wishes from all of you. I liked World Peas a lot, too, but I think this week's winner... Oh, this is a tough one, but I think this week's winner is Bradley R. over at the 
Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group who replied, Mirrored sunglasses for staring into the abyss so the abyss can't stare back. <laughs> that one just tickled me too much not to win, so congratulations, Bradley. Email Chuck at chuck at thisishell.com to claim your prize. Any piece of merch on our website. Thank you for all your answers to this week's question from hell, listeners. Stay tuned for our next question from hell, which we'll be posting to all of you on Sunday, except for Patreon listeners who will get it on Thursday. That's all for today, folks. I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell. Chuck will be back in the interview booth on Monday. Thanks for listening. Stay beautiful and stay tuned. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>